Ladies and gentlemen, um, good evening and welcome to the last of this season's pre-performance talks. And of course, as always, we've left the best till the last. Uh, a few house notices first. Um, by the way, I'm Christopher Cook. Um, uh, could you make certain you've turned off mobile telephones, anything else that might sing, whistle or dance that would be inappropriate here? Um, can I remind you, no photographs and also no recording, though we shall be recording uh, the event, and if you would like to hear all of it or part of it again, uh, then you can find it on the English National Opera website probably from about the middle of next week. The opera we're going to hear tonight was, in a sense, a double struggle for the composer Janáček. Of course, there's the struggle between forgiveness and revenge and between right and wrong in the story itself, and we'll come to that later. But there was also a struggle to get this work staged in Prague, which at the beginning of the last century was the cultural capital of Austro-Hungarian provinces of Bohemia and Moravia. So when Yenufa was finished, Janáček sent the score to the chief conductor of the most important theatre in Prague, the National Theatre. At the end of 1903, he had a reply. I regret sincerely that we cannot accept your opera for production. We would wish the work to meet with complete success on stage for your sake as well as for ours, but we are afraid that your work will not have this kind of success. This actually was a double blow for the composer. He was in absolutely no doubt that it was the best work that he'd written for the stage so far in his career, but there were personal reasons for caring about Yenufa. It had been completed while his beloved daughter Olga was dying. Indeed, in a note in the playtext that he was transforming into this opera, Janáček wrote on the 18th of January 1903, the third week of my poor Olga's struggle with death, Yenufa is finished. A month later, Olga was dead. The play that the composer was making into an opera was a slice of social realism by Gabriella Priceva, who specialised in stories of village life, both bucolic and tragic. The stepdaughter, as Priceva's play was called, with its twin themes of infanticide and redemption, was much criticised on its first appearances, despite the fact that it was partly based on events that had been reported in the press. Not that any of that deterred Janáček as he began to write his libretto in 1896. And it was to be one of the first opera texts to be in prose rather than verse. The drama is set in a Moravian village, the story of two half-brothers, Lacha and Steva, who both loved the same woman, Yennefer, and it was very much to the composer's taste. At the heart of the drama, too, with Lacha disfiguring Yennefer's beauty when he cuts her face and the drowning of Yennefer's illegitimate child by Steva by her stepmother Kostelnitschka in the frozen river. When the ice melts in the spring, the story unravels in public before a horrified village. That Yennefer can forgive her stepmother and Steva and Lacha is one of the wonders, I think, of this story. And it produces an extraordinary musical response from Janáček in the last act of the opera. It was composed between 1896 and 1902, a long gestation period, and first performed not, of course, in Prague, but at the Bruno Theatre, where Janáček lived in Bruno on the 21st of January 1904. When it eventually did reach Prague in 1916, it was heard in a new version, and it would be half a century before audiences again heard the opera as Janáček himself had composed it. 
Well, to help us understand Janáček's Yennefer, we're joined by Elaine McCrill, the soprano, who's covering the role of Kostelnička in this new production, uh, in this revived production, I should say, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Also with us tonight, Mark Wigglesworth, who is English National Opera's music director until the end of this current season. But our first guest is Dr. Peter Zussi, a specialist in Czech and Central European culture who teaches at University College London. Will you please welcome Dr. Peter Zussi. Peter, a very big question to start with, but what were the cultural tensions um, in the, what is now the Czech Republic uh, in the last years of the Austro-Hungarian Empire? And do they explain to some extent where Janáček sits, so to speak? Um, well, I think there are a number of different things we need to take into account here. What is today the Czech Republic is more or less coterminous with what in historical terms would have been called the Czech lands. Uh, and it consists of three main sort of sub-regions. As you mentioned, Bohemia, Moravia, and then Silesia. Uh, Bohemia is sort of the largest and historically has been the sort of central power of that, and Prague is the capital city, not only of sort of the, historically the Czech lands, but of Bohemia in, in particular. Moravia, further to the east, um, is uh, uh, the, the sort of most important city is, is Brno, or, which is where uh, Janáček lived uh, for much of his adult life, um, and where, as you mentioned, the opera had its, had its premiere. Um, and that was very much, as it were, the sort of second city of the realm. Um, and in historical terms, the Margrave of Moravia would have been sort of the second most important um, uh, royal figure after the king of, or duke of, uh, depending on when you're talking about, of Bohemia. And then Silesia is up to the north and is sort of split between what is now the Czech Republic and what is now Poland. So that's, that's one layer. And then there's another layer uh, of tensions that's important, which would be between Czech and German speakers. And it's important to bear in mind that um, the co cohabitation of much of this region with Czech and German speakers goes way back to the, to the Middle Ages um, and uh, is not in any way a sort of phenomenon of the 19th or 20th century. So there were areas that were very heavily German-speaking, many of them in the cities, many of them um, uh, along the borderlands, infamously what was called the Sudetenland in the early 20th century was a region that claimed to have this uh, sort of coherent German identity, but, but it was all very complicated. And then the last layer I would say is important is, is the question of the, the Habsburg Empire at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. Um, and what we're calling the Czech lands here was one province of the multinational, enormous Habsburg Empire ruled from Vienna. And Prague in itself would have been a provincial capital within the Habsburg Empire, let alone Brno. Um, and during the 19th century, effectively you have uh, a rise of a sense of Czech nationalism, Czech nationhood, and a desire for independence from this multinational uh, 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 empire which is ruled from Vienna. And, that, and so that takes on a, a level of kind of maybe ethnic tension between Czech speakers and German speakers that became at times very pointed 
during that period. And, and the choice of language is presumably deeply political. Kafka, for example, chooses to write in German, but we know that Janacek, who marries Zdenka, who is a German speaker, refuses to allow her to speak German and finds it very difficult to speak German with his parents-in-law. Yeah, uh, it becomes a very political choice. And for many uh, major figures, it is a choice because there many of the most important figures we think of at this time are effectively bilingual or, you know, there are ironies. So, you know, Smetana we think of as one of the great national, Czech national uh, composers. His native language was German. Um, he had to learn Czech. Uh, and uh, so all of this was very fraught. I suggested that the play by Gabriela Preissover uh, had in fact uh, roused criticism. Is this true? How successful was the play itself? Um, she had earlier uh, written a play called, uh, uh, basically it's usually translated as The Farmer's Wife, which was an enormous success. And it also takes place in a village in Moravia um, and is sort of tragic in, in many ways. Um, and as I say, had been an enormous success. And on the basis of that, she had been, she had effectively had the second play commissioned. Um, and this was supposed to be another great success. And I think it was, it was well received its first night, but then uh, the criticism started to come in um, and a lot of it was based on a sense, you know, of almost moral outrage. The idea of, you know, a woman committing infanticide uh, was, was deeply problematic or, you know, troubling for many of the critics. Um, and, and then the audience uh, response started to follow that, and the play actually uh, closed after a few performances in Prague, but then moved to Brno, which is when Janáček saw it. Can we guess what appealed to him in what he saw? Uh, well, can only guess. Um, I think that a, a certain combination of what we might call almost you know, traditional folkloric themes, a village theme, um, combined with a deeper sort of more, let's call it more human drama, uh, would have been what he found most interesting. Um, you know, the, the central figure of Yanufa clearly held strong attraction for him. And you know, the, the, so what's interesting is that you might think from the actual play, which the title, as you mentioned, it's, it's her stepmother. It's a very strange title, and it's as strange in Czech as it is in English. Um, Yanufa's name is not mentioned. <laughs> she becomes a pronoun. Um, and uh, effectively, the figure of Kostelnička is, are, you know, can be seen as as central a figure as Yanufa herself. In a way, the tragic story that's at the center of this is Kostelnička's. I mean, she's the Oedipus figure. She's the one who is so hungry for a sort of real family familial relationship with her stepdaughter as she murders her grandchild. It's tragic. D terribly tempting to relate it to the relationship between Zdenka, uh, Janacek's wife, and himself, but we'll, we'll resist that. Um, why does he choose, do you think, to write his own libretto? Uh, and, and this decision to write it in prose rather than verse, um, was he aware of the extraordinary change he was bringing to the standard method of opera production? Well, uh, some of your other guests may have more to say on that, but I would say, um, you know, one of the reasons he writes his own libretto is because he doesn't change that much. It, it didn't need, you know, he, he mostly cut to bring it down to a manageable size. Um, but I think that he wanted to have as, as close uh, a libretto to, to the original play as, as he could. Um, and, you know, that decision to, to use prose, I think, is something that he was 
quite aware of and very proud of. And, um, and I think now musicologists were aware of, he wasn't exactly the first to do that, but he was one of the first. Um, but I think that, yeah, that sense of a kind of, of naturalism is, is part of what he was attracted by. Right the way down to listening to the speech rhythms uh, in the villages and towns that he himself knew, um, which he will then translate into music. So there's something maybe both political about this choice of where this play, uh, this opera takes place in the countryside, part of a national identity, but also his determination to, to give it the colour that comes from the way in which people speak Czech. Yeah, um, the, the whole question of these speech melodies is something that's you know, uh, very much in the forefront of the way people think about Janáček. He used to go out and sort of collect um, the melodies of the way people spoke and make notations, to tr sort of translate them into musical notations. I know I think there's been a tendency, and I'm not a musicologist, I have to say, but there's been a tendency to, to sort of understand that as he was you know, getting ideas for specific rhythms and melodies that then he put into his work, which I don't think is true for the most part. There may be some examples, but rather he was uh, interested in the way people's thoughts and emotions and psychological states were reflected or expressed in the way they speak. Why was the um, opera rejected by Prague? Um, well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is perhaps banal. He had um, perhaps uh, undiplomatically gotten into a, a bit of a spat with the director of the Prague National Theater, Karol Kovacic, uh, few years before that, he written rather nasty sort of offhand, uh, not even a review, but sort of gloss on a work by Kovacic. And um, so, yeah, he hadn't earned himself any, any points doing that. Um, but I think, as you know, that, that letter that you quoted makes clear there may have also been a sense that the modernist idiom was simply ahead of the audience uh, at that time. Should one see it as a political decision? We've been talking about the politics um, of the region in this period. Should one see it also as a political decision, an opera written in Czech? No, because we're talking about the, the Czech National Theatre. So I don't think it was that. I think it was more um, maybe personal politics, cultural politics. But Can you think of an obvious reason why? Uh, Janáček revises it. It's revised for performance eventually in Prague in 1968, Prague 1916. But why does it take so long for us to get back to what Janáček himself had written at the turn of the century, the original version? Um, when, the play, when the opera was f finally produced in, in Prague in 1916, after the, 1903 was the, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, or 1904, um, when it finally was produced, it was produced in Prague in this other version that Janáček and Kovacic had modified um, into a more sort of palatable version. And I think that's the version that became famous. So it became the canonical version for a long time and it took time before uh, musicologists and, and international interest in Janáček developed to the point where people went back and tried to reconstruct the original form of this. But we can, we can draw a parallel between another famous contemporary and that's Franz Kafka, um, who uh, probably many of you know, m the way we read the works of Kafka and the way they became famous was not in the form that Kafka wrote them, but rather in the form that they had been edited into by his good friend, Max Brod, who incidentally was also one instrumental in bringing Janáček to a wider public uh, attention. Peter Zussi, thank you very much indeed. Do stay with us, please.
And now for music and our next two guests. Would you please welcome Elaine McCrill, the soprano who's covering the role of Kostel Nietzsche in this production, and Andrew Smith, a member of English National Opera's music staff. Elaine, who exactly, as, as you've been thinking about it, preparing for this production, is Kostel Nitschka? Well, um, she's Yennefer's stepmother. She married Yennefer's father after his first wife died. He was an alcoholic, and it was an abusive marriage. Not a happy one, I fear. Uh, and he probably died of alcoholism. Um, she's extremely protective of Yennefer and does deeply love her, I believe, even though she is driven to dreadful deeds um, within that. And they're probably rather dependent on each other because Kostelnitschka is a bit of an outsider in the community. She stands for the old ways, um, and, and I think Yennefer brings her into the community a bit more and she's her reason for being there, that she has to protect her and look after her um, as a genuine mother would have. Uh, her justification uh, about her attitude to this and indeed uh, to, to, to Stava would probably be one that it's immoral or wrong and there's a kind of moral dimension. But I sometimes wonder if she isn't simply narrow-minded. It's more than having taken a firm decision about the morality of the situation. Well, I think she doesn't want Yennefer to marry Stava because he's showing signs... Um, of turning out the same way as Yennefer's father had. And indeed, their fathers were brothers. Um, she thinks it's in the family, um, it's in the genes, and she can see if Yennefer ends up with him that her life might turn out to be an unhappy one like her own had with abuse and whatever possibly coming into it. So I don't know that, that she's narrow-minded. Perhaps, um, yeah, I suppose... You might find justification for that, but my personal view is that it is ultimately, deep down, driven by love, um, misguided in some ways and taken to the extreme, for sure. Um, but I think she's got the best intentions, if you can say that, of somebody that... Do, do you think that she favours Lutcher? Would she, I mean, from the beginning, can we suppose that she's made her mind up about Stava and Lutcher? And or whatever the difficulties he may have, um, we can see the production of everybody on the screen here. Um, she would prefer him to marry Yennefer? Yes, I think given a choice early on, that would have been her choice, but she would rather that Yennefer had married Stava to give her, um, to, to take away any shame and dishonour that comes from this baby that they're going to have. Um, but when it's clear that Steva's not going to stick by her, then Latz is the obvious choice. He has loved her his whole life. He will do anything for her. He's almost like the boy next door. Um, even though he's got his own issues, he genuinely does love her. And um, Kostelnitschka can see that, that he would care for her and would certainly save her from this difficult position that she's found herself in. Um, we shouldn't, perhaps, for those who may never have seen this opera, reveal the kind of key uh, middle act. But, but do you think that she acts in the way that she does because she's really uh, frightened of social disgrace uh, for herself as well as Yennefer? 
yes, certainly there was dreadful, dreadful shame attached not only to becoming pregnant out of wedlock, but more importantly, actually having a baby before being married. Um, I think possibly one could squeeze by being pregnant but getting married during the pregnancy, but absolutely not having the baby. Um, and, of, of course, it's Kostanichka that uh, exacerbates the situation by asking them not to see each other for a year after they've made it clear they want to marry, because she hopes, I guess, that Yennefer will change her mind and go off him and perhaps will turn to Latza anyway. And at this point, it's because she doesn't know that Yennefer is pregnant and that, in fact, she's ruining everything. Elaine, what are you and Andrew going to perform for us? We are going to sing, um, I'm going to sing, and Andrew's going to play, a small section from Act Two, really the last few moments where she battles with her decision and her last chance to change her mind before the dreadful deed she's about to undertake. Thank you very much.
Elaine McCrowe and Andrew Smith, thank you both very much. Thank you. you have some sense of extraordinary difficulties listening to you both playing at this piece, Persis. Um, our final guest tonight is tonight's conductor, Mark Wigglesworth, um, who is English National Opera's music director until the end of this current season. Will you please welcome Mark Wigglesworth? Mark, can you remember the first time you ever heard Yennefer? No. <laughs> um, I can actually. It would have been uh, it would have been about the about fifteen years ago when they did it at Glyndebourne, and uh, wonderful production, wonderful. Uh, and I, but my main memory of it was that Glyndebourne, the interval is longer than the opera, so <laughs> that was like sort of that imbalance of trying to create that extraordinary intensity of this piece in such a social environment. But when you, when you open the score, knowing that you're going to be looking after a production of it, what really impresses you? Is it Janacek's extraordinary skill as a musical dram dramatist, or is it actually the music itself that he writes? He, um, he, he is such a... I mean, all great composers are unique, obviously, but there's something about Janacek that feels uh, different. He's such a passionate... Uh, Man and and he seems so much more intent on just getting his story and his characters and his emotions out there, and um, the music itself, the way he writes it, is very problematic because he's so intent on being sincere to the emotion and to the character that a certain practicality uh, falls by the wayside, frankly. And the reason this piece was um, I can completely understand why it took such a long time for this piece to be accepted for performance. Because if I'd been sent a score with uh, Fortissimo, the whole orchestra is playing Fortissimo and, and the singer low in her voice saying something very intimate, I'd think, well, well, how are we supposed to make this happen? Mm -hmm. And the version that made the piece uh, a success and, and made the composer famous was this, version, this other version we've been talking about. A very, uh, um, a very practical, and organised, and, and well written in the most um, uh, musicological sense piece in which you could everything was balanced very well, and all the sort of rough edges had been ironed out and made sort of neat and tidy. Of course, Janáček's uh, extreme intensity goes against that, and what. Macaris has offered us in, in the version that we now do now, where he went back to the original and brought out the the rawness and of of the original. We we what I've tried to do in this production is balance the, the, the practicality of the of the revised version with the honesty of of the original version. And I think there is a third version out there, frankly, which. Um, is a combination of those two. And we've changed, we've had to make the orchestra play pianissimo when they are written fortissimo, um, it's simply in order to hear the singers. And the danger of that is you then um, uh, inhibit the muscle in the music and you inhibit the incredible character of the, and energy of the piece. And, and the challenge of doing it has been trying to allow the orchestra to, to be the emotional heart of the piece without drowning the singers. Charles McCarris, who did so much to, to, to uh, 
awaken our understanding of, of, of Janáček. And um, once said when he was working, I think, on the original version, that he hadn't actually realised just what problems it poses, not only in terms of balance, but what, it, what Janáček asks for his principal singers to do as well, singing, as we've just heard, right at the top of the, of the range. Um, how, how difficult is that? I mean, how, working with the singers, how many problems does he pose, really? Well, I think what Macaris, the greatest gift Macaris has given us all is a sort of acceptance of Janáček's genius. So then, of course, you, you, you engage in all the challenges with the confidence that they're worth it. Um, we have a fantastic cast who, frankly, the technical challenges of, of singing it haven't, haven't been noticed as long as we've been able to keep the orchestra in support of them. Uh, but the reason it's... It, it, I mean, if you're going to write an opera about infanticide, it, it's, it's likely to be extreme, uh, the singing, and, and the expression of the... The challenges of the singing are the challenges of engaging in those emotions, frankly, and the tension... Uh, between the characters is going to create uh, an intensity of singing that is demanding on an emotional as well as musical level. And the reason Janáček is such a great opera composer is that the two are intrinsically linked. It's sometimes said that it's here in Janáček that we first hear that extraordinary um, uh, mature style that is Janáček, that he will, in that amazing last period of his life, write with such speed operas and, and other works too. Do you think this is where we first hear the mature Janáček? And what is the kind of quality of the mature? And what is it that makes this music so remarkable? You hear it especially at the beginning of the second act. There's eight years between the first and second act in terms of, the, of, of when he wrote when he wrote it, and the first act was is um, the hardest for us to work on in terms of the the aspect we've been talking about. And then suddenly you start the second act, and you think, far oh, finally that he's he's actually learned his craft. You kind of hear him in the first act struggling to find it. By the time you get to the second act, everything really does fall into place, and there's this it's this originality that at the same time seems deeply inevitable, and that's. Uh, that's a wonderful combination. Is there a thematic base to the music in the sense that, 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 that he's growing his theme symphonically through the piece? Uh, does it, is that how it works, the score? I think it works purely in relation to the, to the drama. He took the, he took the uh, play, as we've been hearing, and he set it pretty, pretty respectfully. And the motives that come out of the characters and and come out of the dramatic situations unfold. I don't think you hear it as a symphony. I don't think, I, I don't, I don't think it, it works without understanding the drama. It doesn't work as purely as a piece of music. Um, but do you understand the references when they come in relation to the story they're telling? Is there something particular about his orchestration too, the way he lays out the orchestra on the page? Everybody's very naked. Uh, it doesn't... It, you hear everything in a way that's wonderful. You hear the, the trombones being trombones. You hear the violin solo being a violin solo. You hear the woodwind being woodwind. And, and that, how he's able to put that individuality together is very um, realistic, I think, because it, it, we are all different and yet connected. Do you hear in this work, when, particularly when you're working on it, do you hear this idea that's sort of so central to Janáček of speech rhythms being translated or the, the, the sounds of the world translated into musical phraseology? 
Janáček thought that, that the rhythm that we spoke with was the sort of way into the soul of what we were expressing and, and that the rhythm of, of a sentence was its emotional um, power. And he was so obsessed with the rhythms of speech that he would write, he would sit in coffee shops and write and notate what the conversations he was hearing in rhythmical musical terms. He, he even, he, his daughter's dying words, he even took out his notebook and notated them, which is a kind of extraordinary uh, thing to imagine. It means that when you sing it in English, um, we have worked quite hard on making sure that the rhythms are still sincere to our language. and. Uh, with a good translation, which this is, uh, we haven't had to make many changes. But what's been crucial is that is that we give each English line the sincerity of the English line, because that's what Janáček would have wanted. There's not anything that a singer sings rhythmically that is not intrinsically connected to the the rhythm of that sentence. And so for us to to find our own, the own, our own rhythm of our translation was something we, we I was very keen to maintain. I, I, I don't thought of that, but it's very interesting. If, if we think that Janáček is interested in these rhythms because they do take us somewhere that we don't always go or they reveal things, um, this is a rather bigger project than simply translating them into opera. This is not simply a composer thinking about how to construct music. There's a much bigger idea going on there. It's fascinating because we tend to think most composers think of melody as the way to express and to connect with each other. Melody is how the nature of singing we tend to think of as a melodic concept and that, and that we are connecting with each other through that melody. Janáček felt that rhythm, that sort of energy of, of life, that life force was what was how we communicated. Uh, you hear that obviously in in his music. It is incredibly the, the propulsion of his music, his control of whether when it's static and when it's energized uh, is supreme. Above all, Janáček politically was a, a great Slavophile. Um, indeed, Olga had been in Russia before she fell in and came home, and Janáček himself makes this this great journey to the home of the Slav people. I, I sometimes hear. Um, Tchaikovsky, and I sometimes hear Stravinsky uh, in very general terms in musical. Am I right to, to see? Absolutely, but I also hear Puccini, and I hear Mahler, and I hear Debussy. <laughs> and yet, I, I, when you listen to Janáček, you think, oh, that sounds a... But it's not Puccini, and it's not Tchaikovsky, and, it, and it's not Wagner, and it's not Mahler. It's, it's him throughout, but he... He's able to absolutely, I mean, it must, I mean, he started writing this piece in the 19th century and finished it in the 20th. Um, he, as a p person, was born, um, he was born around the time of La Traviata, and he died um, after Wozzeck. So, so he, his, his musical, during his lifetime, music uh, went perhaps through the, 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 the biggest change it ever has done in the, in, in the history of music. And I think you, you get everything in his, in his world that you that you might want to to be, at the start of the twentieth century in Europe. You would have been in the middle of Puccini, Mahler, Debussy, Stravinsky, and and that's what you hear. Mm. We've talked about Charles Bukeris and the extraordinary pioneering productions of Janáček's operas for this company. Um, I wonder whether you think there is a kind of an English national opera tradition with Janáček that is different maybe 
from what you would find elsewhere, um, that, that somehow the company have developed musically a style of their own in this work. I think Janacek is a perfect composer for, for English National Opera because he represents a perfect synchronicity between music and drama. You're never quite aware which is taking the lead. Is this, is this a musical gesture or is this a dramatic gesture? They're one and the same thing. And English National Opera believes that, that opera is an in, invisible and indivisible connection between music and drama. Never should one be paramount at the expense of the other. And I think that is, it, it's perhaps a coincidence that Macaris, being music director here, was so responsible for Janáček, or perhaps it's been part of creating the identity. But if you want an opera, that defines uh, that combination of music and drama, and uh, in a, and, and in a, in a in a language that works so well in the language of the audience. Uh, it's an ideal combination. Mark Wheeler, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> we have, as always, a little hand, time in hand, uh, an opportunity for you to ask questions of any of our guests. We have the great roving microphone uh, belonging to the pre-performance talks. So if you'd like to put your hand up, catch my eye, to talk to any of our guests, please do. Who would like to ask a question? Yes, the microphone is on its way. Um, hi, I, um, I just have to say, it's just one of the most stunning things I've seen. I'm a theatre director, fairly new to opera, and it just, uh, for me, feels so contemporary and you know, speaks of forgiveness, embracing each other. It's a message we need to hear um, today. So my, my question is actually, why does this, um, it, it, do you feel it? Um, why does it feel so modern? Is it something to do with how Mianacek's written it? I mean, is it is it because, as a younger person, we're familiar with film scores? Uh, is it something to do with the way it's reset and that it's sung in English? I'm not sure. I'm just really surprised how almost magically modern it is. To when I when I saw it, that's my question. Peter, let's start with you, then Mark, maybe. Uh, I, I was sort of happy to deflect that question. Uh, I, have, I, I don't have the sort of terminology to really express musicologically why that would be. Um, but I, I mean, it is, it is absolutely true. And I mean, one thing that I would say is that there's such a, a sort of remarkable contrast between this setting, this traditional village setting, which, you know, it has to be said, Janáček is describing a sort of dystopian village setting. I mean, the, the tradition within sort of Czech literature, not only Czech literature, but earlier in the 19th century would have been the villages where, you know, things are happy um, and relationships are clear and comforting in some way. And there's a 19th century, mid-19th century Czech novel called The Grandma, which is one of the most standard works of 19th century Czech literature, which is all about, you know, the wise, I mean, it's going to sound terrible when I describe it, it's more complicated than this, but it's about sort of the wise grandmother who always sort of <laughs> brings about reconciliation. And here you have a setting that's so different, and then the music is by no means what you would expect for that sort of um, village setting. So, I mean, I would leave it to others to describe musicologically why that is, but I think that contrast is very prominent. Mark. I think one of the reasons it feels modern is that the time it takes to sing the lines is pretty much the same time that it would take to say them. In, a, in, an, old, in, a, in, a, in an older opera, Mozart, you know, they will spend quite a while with one particular 
line and, and they will repeat it. And, and Handel comes to mind, yeah. <laughs> this, if, we, if we did this as a play without the music, it would pretty much take exactly the same time. So that the musical, uh, the emotion of the music is working in, in real time and that I think engages the audience uh, not only theatrically but purely humanly in, in the sense of we're just listening to, to what you have to say. And, and if there is a repetition... Uh, and there aren't many, but when the, when they do happen, they have an amazing effect because repetition, when it's chosen succinctly, is very powerful. But also think it's it's uh, opera tends to be considered uh, as as a sort of hobby uh, and a, as an irrelevance and a sort of extra thing in our lives. And actually, the reason people are singing is because they care so deeply about what they're trying to say and, and the emotion, the, the, the power behind the emotion is what f forces the voice to become vocal and I think um, we live in a time when we, when we are all very passionate about things, thank goodness, and we are more and more able to express them in that passionate way and uh, so I think it's easier to relate to uh, people who are doing the same thing. Thank you. Another question. In the front row. Hold on, wait for the, just in case. May I ask, how does it feel to sing such testing material and are you taking any special measures to prevent wear and tear? Well, I'm working as a cover on the show. I'm not singing the performances unless there's an emergency. Um, Yes, um, my background is in Wagner, so I, I have built up quite a lot of stamina, but not every singer approaching these roles would come from the same background. It isn't necessary. Um, and so, yeah, one does have to take it easy with the emotional um, side of things as well. Obviously, we don't do things by halves, but you can drain yourself if you don't take rest and so on you know I, when I was learning this I found it very difficult to actually sing certain sections without bursting into tears and you have to get over that because it's for me to make you burst into tears um, not to do it myself and so yes it's uh, it is quite a you do have to be sort of in control of of your emotions and you have to be very conscious of your stamina and your the wear and tear and take it easy when you need to in between rehearsals and so on. Look after yourself. <laughs> We've time for one more question, if anyone would like to ask the last question. Anybody? Well, then all remains for me to do is to say thank you um, for being here as an audience. Thank you to, I see familiar faces who've been here on and off through the whole of the season. See you when we start again in the autumn. Um, underneath you, under your bottoms, you will find details of the pre-performance talks at the beginning of next season. And also, of course, my huge thanks to our four guests, Mark Wigglesworth, Elaine McCrill, Andrew Smith and Peter Zuzzi. Thank you all very much indeed.